0: You're tuned into ninety point seven FM K A L X Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by vertebrate paleontologist Liz Ferrer uh, from the Department of Integrated Biology. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> and uh, you actually just got back from an exciting trip in Berlin.
1: Yes, I went to the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting. It was there. Sierra I was just lucky enough that it was in Berlin, which is pretty awesome. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and you presented something even?
1: I did, yes. And uh, as I mentioned before, I happen to continue carrying around that presentation poster with me. <laughs>
0: nice. You never know when you might have an opportunity exactly. to throw it up and teach some people about uh, lizards. Yeah,
1: somebody's like, "What science? Like, well, I just happen to have this in my purse, so I'm ready. <laughs> Perfect.
0: And you do study lizards, right?
1: I do, yes. I, I call myself a vertebrate paleontologist, and I'm Method Z, but uh, I just happen to focus on monitor lizards for most of my research, Yes.
0: Okay, and we'll get into all of that. So vertebrate paleontology, can you just break that phrase down for us a little bit?
1: Sure. Um, most people have heard paleontology, you know, the study of past life. And I just focus on vertebrates. So things with the vertebral column in the past. And so there are invertebrate paleontologists. And there are people who study microfossils, too. But I'm in the vertebrate realm.
0: <laughs> so like things with bones. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You, what was your undergrad degree in?
1: It's actually in geology, but I happened to go to university where I could declare a specialization, and I declared paleobiology. So I did take a lot of paleontology classes and some bio classes also.
0: And you did field work as well.
1: I did, yeah. As a geology major, we had to do field camp, and so I was able to do a couple of field trips there focused on paleo fieldwork as opposed to just, like, here are some cool rocks we can talk about. But a few of the summers in undergrad, too, I volunteered for a few field programs as well.
0: Can you tell us about them? Were they interesting? or? Sure,
1: yeah. Um, I actually contacted the Museum of the Rockies at one point. They're one of the big field programs that a lot of people in paleo happen to know about. And when I was just searching things online, you know, Googling field work, what do I do? Um, they popped up. And so I contacted them, and it was in Montana. And that's where there are a lot of dinosaur bones. And so the first real thing I found on my own actually happened to be part of a triceratops. And, yeah. like, every kid who's obsessed with dinosaurs would... Like, want that as part of something they did in their life. And so I remember after I did that, I was like, I'm in the right place and I'm in the right field. This is what I want to be doing. Um, But then also when I came here and started my uh, graduate degree, my advisor, Kevin Padian, happens to do a lot of field work also in Ghost Ranch, New Mexico. And so I had gone there a couple of summers with the crew and him. And that has uh, tons of material of different, you know, different type of early reptile guys and things. And so that was kind of fun to do. That was like with a larger crew. And I don't think I ever found anything new there. But just sitting around digging up bones is A pretty awesome way to spend a summer.
0: Yeah, I know. So which part of the triceratops was it? Was it like a little toe or something?
1: Actually, yeah, <laughs> that's what most people always ask to. Um, it's called the epiparietal, which, you know, everyone knows the trike frill that they have. And so they have little bones at the end of their frill that make little bumps. And it's one of those bones, uh, which was pretty cool to find. I had no idea what it was. It just looks like a triangle thing. Uh, so I remember holding it for a while until someone told me. And then I was like,
0: okay, good. Now I could tell people. <laughs> yeah, <you're> like jackpot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. And so the New Mexico site was also dinosaurs,
1: So actually, yeah, that is a little bit earlier material than what was in the Montana stuff. Um, And so that was kind of like you get groups that are there in early dinosaur ones and also a lot of reptiles that lead to other we call them archosaur line kind of guys so the crocs and things like that so a lot of really different things there uh since that's not my main focus i don't know everything that's there but uh it's you have one field site that's early in dinosaur time and then i did montana which was later on so 90 million years later you know things like that
0: so was it a natural transition from dinosaurs to reptiles or how did that happen
1: actually it was pretty natural When I was an undergrad, I always assumed I was going to work on dinosaurs. That's what got me interested in paleontology as a kid. And I had done uh, undergraduate projects on a dinosaur. And then I kind of started to learn more about paleontology and realized that there were so many other things Mm -hmm. out there besides dinosaurs, as I hope people know. (laughs) So then I, I started playing around with ideas of different side projects, and then I end up having to take these classes on, on reptiles, I'm on monoreptiles reptiles here, and that's um, when I learned about monitor lizards and other groups, and I said, okay, I think that they're going to help me out for what I want to work on a little bit more. So it just kind of just naturally came by playing around with different types of projects and ideas.
0: So what is a monitor lizard?
1: Um, so most people know Komodo dragon as, like, the most popular monitor lizard uh, just because they get so large. But, yeah, they're in the family of Varanidae. If, if people are interested in that. And then, yeah, they're just—they pretty look like a, a typical lizard, how you'd recognize them. Uh, there are probably over 70 species of them today. But when you see them, you can you could recognize them as being a monitor lizard. They have that look, this long neck, this really elongate kind of face. And I got interested in them because since they're also, we call it conservative morphologically, that they all look like that, um, but they're very diverse in some areas, I wondered, okay, what is it about this group that even though they have this distinct look and body plan that works for them, they could still get pretty diverse, and and then how does that look in the fossil record? And so that was the kind of questions I was interested in, possibly with dinosaurs, Uh, but uh, with monitor lizards, I thought, I could bring in a modern component to compare with the fossil record and that's kind of a cool direction Paleo was going and so I ended up going that way instead
0: and what part of the world do these live in are they all like in one part of the world are they spread out 70 species that's quite a few right? yeah
1: it is so today they're only in a lot of the southern continents and so we find them in africa in southern asia um, all the way down to australia but we find fossils of them in north america in europe and in northern asia too um, so that's kind of another interesting question as is uh like why are they now on the southern continents? Where did they originate? And those are some of the things that people look at. Um, but their diversity today is is pretty cool, too. So you know, as I mentioned, there's probably over seventy species, although people are always debating that stuff. but they're really low diversity in Africa and Africa's huge, which is pretty interesting that you know you only maybe have five or six species possibly there, whereas you have over thirty of them in Australia, and then who knows how many in southern Asia as well. So like, what is it about this group that they did really well in Australia, and why is it that they have this low diversity in Africa, and like w- the patterns that might affect the diversity? So that's kind of another thing that got me interested in looking at this group, at least for the
0: modern species as well. So I, I have this picture in my mind of the lizard from the adventures down under or uh that disney movie with the mice in australia and there's a big nasty lizard i yeah, think it's that...
1: probably a modern lizard probably in a variety. Variety. yeah <laughs> but
0: that, yeah okay Just... i
1: haven't seen that movie in a while but now i have to watch it because that's probably what it is yeah it's like
0: a really low to the ground beefy lizard with a big head and that's
1: totally a then if that's the case yeah
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll have to go back and check that out. Um, so you mentioned that you find them in the fossil record. They're more in the northern continents, but now you only find them in the, in the southern ones. Yes.
1: It's just interesting that, that we, ha- we see things of them like in North America, too. It's not exactly within our group. There are guys who are closely related to varanids in the fossil record of them. So when I'm talking about varanid fossils, I also mean varanids and friends and older family is kind of what I'm relating to. But the genus varanus, which is, you know, all the, all the modern guys, um, they're, they're hard to identify that to exactly to that genus. So um, we don't know exactly where they would have originated or how it would have gone or how all the fossil things might directly be related to them. But, you know, when you see a fossil, you know that they're they have enough of the characteristics that we're like, okay, we know that they're related to this group, whether they're exactly in it or just a cousin of them. That's usually what people
0: end up like debating on. But so you mentioned a few of the characteristics, like the I think that thick neck and the elongate face are, are. Is that pretty much it, or are there others?
1: Well, actually, um, for people who are really interested in lizard stuff, one of the main things they have is they have a. On their vertebrae, they have this really compressed portion of the centrum or the center part of the vertebrae. So when people see that in the fossil record, you're like, okay, this is a monitor lizard or model lizard family, we see that. But they do have like the really elongated neck for lizards. Um, not all of them have necessarily the exactly long face, which is mostly what I study is actually uh, the head shape for them and how that varies. Um, so even though they all look very similar, there's still some things that do differ and do some interesting patterns and morphological changes on their face. But they have really long tails. They're, like you said before, actually, they're really beefy. That's another thing. They're, they're pretty beefy kind of guys. But they're like this elongate lizard. And some of them get, like I said, like really large. And some of them are really tiny, like super cute, you know, size of the palm of your hand's And you find those in Australia and stuff, too. So they just do a lot of things with their size, if anything, stuff, too.
0: So why do they all share these characteristics? Is it just uh, because they have common ancestry, or do you think there's some sort of function to these characteristics?
1: The first monitor lizard, you know, the ancestor that led to this group of guys, it just seemed to work. And having this morphology probably allowed them to do a lot of different things and everything that they wanted or could do. Um, So just why mess with what ends up working for you? And so this allows them to just have really broad ecologies, which is another cool thing about monitor lizards. I mean, most of them, as people know, Komodo dragon, you have these large carnivore guys. Um, but some of them even ended up going frugivorous, which means they're eating fruit. So they're living in trees and feeding on that. The smaller ones will eat a t- will eat tiny things. The larger ones will eat larger things that they can get to. And they also live, some of them live in more desert regions. Some of them live near the coast, near water. like So the Nile monitors as people know, they've you know, in Africa and it's near the, the river there and stuff. So they live in a lot of different places, different kind of habitats and do a lot of things. And so it just seems that their morphology worked to do a lot of these. So just why change it?
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. We're in the middle of an episode of The Graduates here on CalX. My name is Tessla Munson. Today I'm joined by vertebrate paleontologist Liz Ferrer talking about fossil lizards and living lizards monitor lizards, mm-hmm. Komodo dragons even. Mm-hmm. Why did they call them dragons? Do you know? Is they're just that ferocious? I
1: think that's what it is. Uh, they're so big and scary. And like, what other thing can you compare it to than the, the, one of the largest mythological reptile thing that, you know, could attack you?
0: <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that you look at this? You mentioned like head shape uh, and differences. How do you go about examining that?
1: Yeah. Um, so for my research, as I mentioned before, I'm really interested in you know, the, the the head shape, as I said, but also how it relates to diversity. How So um, what I tell people is I study diversity and disparity in modern lizards. And by disparity, I just mean how much morphological shape, how, how much does it differ? So how much changes in shape across these guys do we see? And um, I focus on the head for that. And by diversity, the things I look at um, when I count as diversity are just counts, so how many of the guys are there. But I also look at something we call phylogenetic diversity, which, um, you you know, it's just a fancy term for just saying I'm looking at how how closely related are the guys who are around there are, um, and so phylogeny being their evolutionary history. So the way that I measure disparity or the morphological changes is a technique called geometric morphometrics so there are different things you can do people can just do direct measurements like how long is this skull here well, how big is this thing on here but with uh, g i'll call it gm from now on it's a shorter term for geometric morphometrics it's an interesting technique you can do to quantify just put numbers on the shape by putting a whole bunch of points on the skull so usually i do it two-dimensionally meaning i just take photos and um, I'll put points on there and I'll compare how all those points across those photos might compare to one another or shift uh, so the programs will just computate that for me and then, and then that's how I get a, a nice number to quantify the shape for me and then I can do a whole bunch of statistics on that so how does the quantification of all these guys who live in this region of shape relate to the guys who live in this region or in this time period relate to guys in this time period um, so that's kind of why I use morphometrics and for a diverse I mean, a lot of that is, has been done for at least counts. But um, there's been a lot of research on their evolutionary histories already. And so we have their evolutionary trees. And I play around with those to look at how the relationships of the guys who live in different regions relate to how much skull shape differs in those different
0: regions. How how does size play into this? I mean, are they, you mentioned small ones, big ones. Mm-hmm.
1: So the nice thing about geometric morphometrics is it that it removes the size component. And so it doesn't matter how big they are because what it'll do is it'll align the photos and just look at shape directly and remove size. Although size is really interesting, so it's something I can look at with the data after the fact. And with monitor lizards, it's interesting because... Uh, as I mentioned previously, in Africa, they have very low diversity. But the guys don't differ in size as much as they do in places like Australia, where there's really high diversity. And you have the tiny guys who are you know, size of the palm of your hands. And then you have the really large ones, too, who you know, can get to meters in length. And it's interesting to look at how size and shape might compare in those regions and like how might that factor into why diversity might
0: be different. Can you spill the beans on it? Is okay. there is it more like related to how um, they're related to each other, or does it seem to be some environmental effect? Yeah.
1: So actually, it I, I think that it there's a little bit more to it than like some of the you know, so most people will say if you have. High diversity, you'll have high morphological disparity. Like, so I expected to say, okay, there's going to be a lot of variation in skull shape in Australia, for example, where there's a lot of them and not so much in Africa. But uh, I guess I could spill the beans for this part of my research. Uh, I found that it's actually not the case. And so you have uh, – in Africa where you have you know, just very low diversity, that's where they have the most – differences in skull shape. And if you actually just look up pictures of these guys, you know, if Google, you know, monitors in Africa, they, they do have these really weird skulls. Some are really broad and wide and some are uh, more of elongated. and some have these weird bumps in their nose. And I just think that uh, in Africa, they also don't overlap too much where they all live. And so they're just really kind of separating things a lot more than I think that in Australia, where the small ones and the large ones can live alongside each other a little bit more. Because they're not competing as much. I mean, you're a small guy. You're not eating the same things that the huge guy is. You're eating what you can. And so um, that might factor into just why we have differences in like, how much shape variation they have.
0: You convinced me, that's <laughs> for sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Well, <laughs> so where do you get these specimens? I mean, you're not just going out and, like, catching live ones, right? Are they in museums or...? Where do you find them?
1: Yeah. Luckily, my research, since I'm focusing on the skull, I get to just mostly go to museums. If I was studying their ecology or looking at them alive today, I would have to do a good portion of field work, uh, which is kind of, you know, it's, it's a lot of time that you have to put into trying to find these guys and doing that. Um, but I end up, most of my time is going to museums and photographing specimens to do the morphometric, the GM analysis I mentioned before. So I've uh, traveled to museums here in the States, uh, Smithsonian, American Museum. Actually, the museum I'm part of here, the Museum of Pantology at Berkeley, has a lot of skulls, too, as well as the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology. Um, so, yeah, a lot of places in the States. And I've actually got a chance to go to Australia multiple times. So I went to Perth and I went to Sydney and the museum's there just because, you know, if I want Australian specimens, they tend to have a large number of them. And uh, in the States here, we just have great collections stuff, too. So, yeah, I get to spend a lot of time going there and sitting in dark rooms with a camera <laughs> photographing skulls. But I think the outcome is really interesting. From doing all that,
0: yeah, no, that's really cool. I guess uh, I think here in the United States, people don't always realize that museums are not just about exhibits but that they actually have like collections back there. But obviously, that's where you're getting most of your data from.
1: Yeah, you know. So I, it's actually really interesting going to these museums. You have to walk through the public exhibits and then see everyone there, and like you know, the cool stuff's out there and stuff. And uh, then you go to the back and the research areas, which many museums, you know, have that because researchers are going there traveling, and it's just way more stuff than people probably realize are there. And I feel lucky having gone to science; that I get to see that. Um, so for other people, it might be like this is kind of boring stuff in drawers, but I'm like there are thousands and millions of specimens here that can be studied and people could do research on. So I think museums are really important, not only for just sharing science with the public, but also for us researchers to have access to so many different things that we can do in specimens
0: and stuff. And you're definitely interested in sharing science with the public, right? I know you're involved in a lot of outreach projects. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, I actually am a little obsessed with outreach. Uh, I love it. So I'm part of multiple programs that allow me to you know, go into classrooms and talk about what kind of research people are doing here. But also I think that science should be shared with the public. People can see what's being done and also the kind of science that's done. And so you know, if, if maybe you were interested in, in going into research and you didn't know if people did that or people would be interested in it, you can see that there's such a variation of things to do and people have done. And, yeah, and I think that uh, for the classrooms and and research aspects, I think um, teaching students what kind of science is done behind the scenes that's making the stuff that they're seeing in their textbooks is cool. To actually see science being done as opposed to just told the results of it, I think are really important.
0: Um, So what are some of these programs to the they have names, I know. Yeah, they do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the main one I'm part of right now actually is Bay Area Scientists in Schools, which, you know, is in the Bay Area here. And I actually learned about them my first year uh, as a graduate student here at Berkeley from a lab mate who had volunteered for them. And so they're like a, an interesting volunteer-based type of organization there where graduate students uh, can create an hour-long lesson and then go into local schools here in the Bay Area and teach it to students. And so you put the lessons online and uh, teachers from different grade programs might uh, look and say, okay, well, I'm teaching this topic, and so what are some things that are being done there? And see, somebody has a lesson relating to it, and then we can go and teach it. And um, so I volunteered for that the first few couple years here, and I loved it so much. Um, actually, a fellow graduate student here, Jessie Adderhall, um she happens to have a ton of skulls that so she's collected throughout her like life. And we created a program, a uh, lesson, I mean, to look at variation in skulls and teeth. And we, it was for second graders, like, how do you look at a tooth of an animal and could tell us what it ate? And then it was all modern stuff, and we're like, as paleontologists, what we do is we look at what modern animals do and then put it in the fossil record so we can tell, okay, well, how do we know what fossil animals do? Oh, because we look, compare it to some things that modern animals do. So we created this lesson, and the students were just so excited about looking at these skulls and so excited about the kind of research we did. And, and, and also, they, they always have an image of what a scientist is, you know, this, this older man in the lab, holding a beaker and he's stuck in a digi room with like a whole bunch of liquids bubbling around him and stuff and to see these two you know like 20 something year old graduate student women come in with skulls and tell them about cool paleo stuff it was like oh, oh okay so anybody could do science if you're interested in it and you do it and so once I started seeing their reaction and like that's how they they got excited about things I'm like okay I think outreach is a way more important than people might necessarily like I mean people love outreach and want to do it but uh, for me it was like more important for me than I might have thought originally and so uh yeah, so um, I became part of the steering committee for this program, and um, we have a lot of events that we help out and volunteer for. So I've gone and I like, invited to give a talk at like a 4-H fair and stuff before, and I just basically talk about as a what do you do as a graduate student and like science and get kids excited about it and want to retain their interest to hope that they might continue being into science in the future.
0: So you're not an old white man. Oh no! For
1: people who are listening, no, I'm not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, apparently other people can do science. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that an issue in in science today? Yeah, actually.
1: Um, oh, this is another group I'm part of: uh, Integrated Biology Women in Science. Uh, the nice thing about being part of that group is I. Um, always wanted to keep up to date with, you know, what the numbers are. And, yeah, it's, you know, we have a a lack of women in different science fields, in biology, actually. It's interesting being in a bio department because I'm surrounded by a lot more women than I was in uh, my geology department, for example. So in some fields, it's getting better about the people who are representing the field there. But in so many scientific fields, yeah, we don't have very many women and uh, also, you know— People from low economic backgrounds or minorities and stuff like that they sometimes they don't get any much access to being able to do science or like all those other things and so i got I'm really interested in that um especially from my background, so I'm the first person in my family to have really gone even through college and and everything and I'm from New York and things and so I wasn't surrounded by science or anything like that and then I realized how important it is you know from the beginning to let people know what science is like and the interesting thing and uh and I think that some stuff like that will help. Get more variety and more diversity within our field is uh, catching them early on and then teaching them like what what do you want, need to do to be a scientist and like you know it's anybody can do it it doesn't matter what your background is, so I think that that being part of these programs is helpful and,
0: okay well, uh, maybe I can ask you another tough one while we're doing tough ones and why I mean why should we want diversity in science is that what do diverse people bring to science?
1: I think that um, people who are coming from different backgrounds and, you know, different educations, they might look at things differently. And so I think that if increasing diversity not only is, you know, is needed, it's great for people like to just have representation there. But uh, also people from different backgrounds, yeah, you know, we have – the nice thing is actually uh, – at this meeting I was at, uh, it's it's nice to see vertebrate paleontology becoming more diverse and stuff, and we have younger people from different backgrounds, and they tend to look at things differently, you know, you have the versus the young old, and I think that uh, diversity will help not only just make science. Hit a broader audience and stuff, but also I think that it will help further science itself because people will be bringing in a lot of different perspectives they might not have before. There are many other things, but I think that that's like a really important promotion of that. And also, as somebody you know who comes from like who's lived in a diverse area and uh, and has a fairly diverse family, like it's nice to uh, to be part of a group like this and stuff. There.
0: So, what would you recommend for students like undergrads who are interested in getting into science and? For people who are too old to go sit in on one of your base's lessons, what mm-hmm. what can students do to get involved?
1: Actually, the nice thing is I, I feel like um, people don't realize that, you know, you yourself, you can contact museums or places there and say, hey, I'm really interested in this. Is it possible for anything to do? So... I'm one of those people that I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't care. I'll, I'll ask you. And then I'm like, okay, what is it going to hurt if I don't get that? Um, and so I actually love when I get emails from high schoolers or even when I was doing elementary schools. They're like, oh, can you show me this or can I come here? And, you know, most people in the field are really open to sharing this. And so even if you yourself, you're like, okay, well, I don't know where to start looking, what books to get, or I don't know what kind of programs there are for people who I am. You can contact people and they will help and stuff. So one of my favorite examples, actually, when I was an undergrad, There was one summer where I didn't know what to do uh, at all, and I'm one of those people that I I always have to feel like I have something going on. And I emailed um, different labs. Um, So I, I went to undergrad in Bowling Green State University, in Ohio. And, you know, there was there wasn't that much around me, paleo wise. And so um, I had heard about these different programs. And I came across uh, Dr. John Hutchinson, he's in the Royal Veterinary College in London by his research. And I was like, you know, I just want to email him to see if it's possible for people from just here or from out of place to to go work with him there and he was just so welcoming He said, yeah you know i have a lot of stuff that undergrad can do and if you can get funding or anything i can help out a little bit here too you could just come by and i went up there and i i applied for some undergrad uh, just general research funds and i went up there and i did that so even if you're let's say an undergrad and you don't know what major you want or what to do you know just emailing labs and working for them a little bit people are pretty open to that because they understand it uh And even younger, I I know of no people who volunteered at local museums who just went back and helped pick fossils, and they were like eight or nine years old, and they were already doing paleo because because they contacted them and said, hey, can I just come and help? So I think that just being really open and being willing to ask and look for these things, like anybody can start doing science.
0: Yeah, no, that's great to know. Uh, Anybody, they don't have to be an old white man even. No,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we're just about out of time here on The Graduates. Do you have any last words? words for the audience?
1: I don't know. I guess if people who are listening or anything like that, you know, if you're interested in getting into going to graduate school or getting into science and something's been holding you back or anything like that, I just just try it. That's I think that's my that's end up what I tell people a lot of the time. And I think it's really important to hear, even though it just sounds so simple and like just just kind of go for it. And there's nothing that you can lose and just... Yeah, see, when it's happening, maybe you'll go into science, maybe you'll go into something else, but like, you wouldn't have lost anything. I think you would gain more than anything else.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Liz.
1: Thank you for the invite. Yeah,
0: no, no, my pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, this has been another wonderful episode of The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. Today I've been joined by vertebrate paleontologist Liz Ferrer talking about her work with Dinosaur fossils and veranids, and you know, all sorts of lizards and techniques geometric, morphometric techniques for uh, shape analysis, and of course, all her wonderful outreach here in the Bay Area, science education with students. Uh, so, again, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your work today.
1: You're very welcome. You.
0: And we'll be back two weeks from today with another episode of the Graduates Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Uh, every other Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. here on CalEx. My name is Tesla Munson and uh, this has been The Graduates. Stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX, Berkeley.